Hey everyone, and welcome to Know Your Gear QA Podcast. I hope everyone had a fantastic week. This is the first question of the day. It came from Edgar who says, because of your videos, my guitar knowledge has quadrupled in the last year. Should we expect a guitar to be set up when purchased from a physical store, not from an online store? <laughs> okay, so I understand where he's going with this. Here's what I like to say, and I and if you guys watched on the Phil McKnight 2 channel, I released a video, I think earlier this week, about Sweetwater's 55-point inspection. I went through the card and, and kind of went over the inspection, what was on the card, and I explained what I perceived as the goods, the bads of that card. What came up on that video is what I believe is what I call the basic setup and the performance setup. I believe that if you buy an instrument, every instrument really should have a basic setup. And a basic setup to me means that it's playable. For me, it's like I might test, like I play a open, like I said, the G chord, the C chord, and then the D chord, and then maybe run, you know, G minor pentatonic and play that. And then maybe play uh, E minor pentatonic and do a bend. And I have a, just a couple easy basic things. And there's a reason why I pick that stuff. That's like, to me, it's common chords, common scales for common players. So the instrument should be able to perform in that environment of doing those things. Again, what I'm looking for is an action that's not fatiguing to the hand, notes that don't choke out the uh, frets, that don't choke out, choke out the notes and have problems. So again, basic setup. All instruments need that. Now, I could argue, and I'm sure you guys could too, at some price point, it gets so cheap, you know, like a glary guitar for $75, how can they do a basic setup? I, I don't know how I would justify that. At some point, especially with dealing retailer, there should be a basic setup. Now, a performance setup to me is different. A performance setup is tailored for your performance abilities. In other words, what can you do and what you want to do? Your personal taste. And this is why I say that because setting up guitars, what you do is you kind of lend into those two or lean into those two uh, concepts. To answer your question, if you get a guitar and it's not playable, then that's not right. It should be playable. But holding a company for a, you know, a mid-price guitar, should have a perfect performance setup. That's a tough thing to 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 say. I I don't think they should have to do that. I think if they do that, it's great, but I don't I don't think they should have to. I think the guitar should just be playable with a basic. So if you're getting instruments, especially Gibson standards, you know, they're pricey instruments and they're not up to snuff, yeah, you can return them and get them from a better place. Of course. You know, it's one of those things, like I said, I'm biased. I really don't love buying my guitars from Guitar Center. So every time I've done so, it's usually an opportunity purchase. It's not something I prefer to go buy from there because they get handled a lot. They don't get a lot of attention to them. Patrick says, thoughts on the new diesel microamp? You know, so I reviewed the the Bogner microamp, the diesel microamp. I have the uh, BE. They sent all three. They didn't send them at the same time. That would have been actually cooler if I would have had a chance to hear the, all three of them before I started reviewing each one. Here's my thoughts. First thought is I kind of wish they would have just released all of them at the same time. I think there's a little bit of, it feels to me like now you've seen the Friedman, then you've seen the Bogner, now the, the Dietzel. You know, it's a little fatiguing. What I will tell you is of the three, the Bogner did impress me because I did buy a Bogner after playing that one. I bought a Bogner Ecstasy, which is a fantastic amp. The Dietzel, I think actually sounds, I want to say it, I don't want to say it sounds the best. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's just got a great tone that I really enjoyed of the three. But I think if I can, and like I said, they decided to leave these with me. When I agreed to do the reviews, uh, they reached out, again, very transparent about everything. They reached out, uh, the person I deal with at Boutique, who's actually uh, not even in the United States, it's outside the United States. He reached out to me and asked me, asked me if I would be interested in checking out these amps. Of course, I said, absolutely. I told him, please, you know, yes. And uh, I asked for actually nothing. I said, Hey, if you send them to me, I'll, uh, you know, we can RAM back. I just want to try them because like you guys, I was really curious about them and I kind of figured I was going to buy one. So if I could try them all on somebody else's dime, I thought that'd be cool. And plus make some content. And, um, they were very kind. They said, Hey, you know, you can keep them after you're done with them. And I said, Oh, that's awesome. What I will tell you is, um, there's another one coming out and it will come out, I believe in December towards the end of the year, as you guys know, and I'm sure a lot of you can figure out which one it is. (laughs) And, uh, there's, I think even another one's after that, but what I will tell you is based on the three, if I could only pick one, it would be the Friedman BE. And the reason is I think it's the most versatile of the three for what I would use them for. And for what I would use this for, besides, you know, it's just cool to have and it's kind of a fun thing to play with and it's got a good tone. I was going to do a video comparing them against the orange uh, tiny terrors, but I actually got to play a tiny terror (laughs) and it's not even the same legal disease. These are much nicer much nicer sounding. These actually sound like legitimate amplifiers, probably because like I said, there's pedal technology in these. There's literally just the pedals with a with a power amp. Madchris224 says, can you get intonation right with a clip-on tuner? Yes. The answer is yes. The reason is, one, I do it all the time, but two, 
clip-on tuners, when people say they're inaccurate, their inaccuracy is in the sensitivity of them. It's not really anything else. So what it's clipped onto, of course, you're going to have issues if you try to... Like, I wouldn't use a clip-on tuner if I was intonating a guitar that was in drop C. I'm not a real big fan of the clip-on tuners for low tunings. They they tend to be a little bit jumpy and a little hard to uh, work with. So I'd rather use a nicer strobe tuner or something just a little easier to gauge and figure out and slowly adjust and, and actually see what I'm doing in real time, where the tuners jump a little bit because the accuracy gets a little little dodgy so as you're tuning the instrument they kind of adjust in a very jerky motion but yeah absolutely like i said i've, I've done it on the fly i've done it in the shop it's done i mean it's totally fine netto meadow netto meadow says hey phil today my epiphone es339 inspired by gibson in pale and blue which is a fantastic color arrived I changed the pickups to my uh, on my first guitar. Congratulations. And it sounds great uh, celebrating with a treat. It sounds like a beautiful guitar. I also bought an ES-339, but it didn't go well. In fact, I've had two bad experiences with reverb in the last two weeks. When I say reverb, I mean sellers on reverb. Bought an ES-339 used... I got it. The description was perfect condition, no cracks, no 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 repairs, no issues. It was on, in my opinion, it was on the pricier side of what they're going for. But again, it was the color I wanted. It was in the condition, perfect condition. And it said, please inspect photos carefully. This is why I want to bring this up. I've really decided that's a bunch of shit. Just want to be really upfront about this. I'm really getting tired of these. Please check photos in the comments of these sale auctions on Reverb. The reason is it's almost like a cop out. It's almost like, oh, you didn't see it. So therefore it's not our fault. I'm like, you know, you're there. Describe the problems with the instrument. Don't play games with the whole check the photos. So here's why I'm telling you this. I have a 5K 27 inch monitor in front of me. That's what I'm staring at right now. That's the monitor I used to check the photos of this guitar, which the photos looked fantastic. There was no issues. The guitar was shipped. It was a store. It wasn't a, a private seller. The guitar shows up. There's a big chip in the side of the neck. The chip is old. As you guys know, uh, you know, obviously with years of experience repairing guitars, I can tell when a chip is aged. It's aged from years. The wood's discolored. It's been there. The guitar was like a 2000, I can't remember, I think 2004 Gibson. So, I mean, obviously this, this chip's been there for at least, you know, five, 10 years. So anyways, it's not in the photos because that's the one section of the guitar they didn't take a photo of. The reason why this was interesting was I, you know, sent a response to the seller saying, hey, I received the guitar, sent a picture immediately. By the way, I film all my unboxings. When the box comes in, I unbox it and I just film it. It has nothing to do with YouTube. I just started doing this. So I'm filming the unboxing of it. And of course I discovered the chip. I emailed them and said, Hey, there's a chip in the neck. Obviously it wasn't done during shipping. And uh, by the way, it said, check the photos, which I did, but there's no photo of the base side of this guitar by the ninth fret, which is where the chip was. They said, Oh, you know, they were not, uh, at first very nice uh, said, uh, we apologize. We didn't see the chip. Uh, they said, go ahead and send it back. The first thing I didn't like, about the experience and that's why I want to share it with you was they wanted me to do a return outside of reverb. They didn't say it like that, but that's what was happening. And so they said, yeah, we'll send you a label. And I didn't like the idea that nothing was going through reverb. So I actually requested return through reverb. Then I didn't hear from them. Then I finally got the, I think I had a poke at them a little bit and I finally got the, uh, the, the RA label. I returned the instrument. Then they got my guitar and they didn't refund my money. Days were going by, no no, no acknowledgement that they got the guitar, even though the tracking number shows they got it. So I put in a dispute with PayPal because Reverb now has removed a lot of the icons where you used to have, uh, you know, some kind of recourse with dealing with people. There was nothing I can do. It just said waiting for return. So I put in a dispute through PayPal. What was interesting about this and why I'm sharing the story was, is what happens next was really perplexing. Reverb then reached out to me and said, when you put in a dispute through PayPal, you're putting the dispute to us, but we didn't sell you the guitar. And so they said, please, remove the dispute through PayPal and then we will get your money refunded from the buyer. I responded with, if I tell PayPal that the issue has been resolved and you don't take care of me, I'm screwed. Why would I have a PayPal service to protect me and then not use it? Here's why this is this story, which is not an interesting story, but why I'm sharing with you. After I told them that, they refunded the money back to PayPal. Reverb did. They got it, I guess, and within minutes. It was like within 10 minutes. The dispute automatically closes. I don't have to close the dispute because it's refunded. So I thought I'd just share those experiences because I keep seeing you guys talking about that. Um, Somebody asked me or somebody made a comment earlier if I'd seen or know about the fact that Sweetwater sells used gears. I have heard uh, used gear. I'd heard that. Um, I've seen the website, uh, but I know nothing about it. Somebody, and the question was, what do we think about it versus reverb? I have no idea. The problem with that I can already see is, look, 
Reverb at this point, just like eBay, at some point they have all the product. You're going to go where the selection is. That's the thing. Overall, I'm not unhappy with Reverb as a whole. Like I said, it is interesting to watch the sellers out there. It'd be difficult. Bullshit <laughs> wants to know, Phil, is roasted maple a crock of bullshit? Interesting. I don't think so. I like the idea of roasted maple. I think it's uh, it's here to stay. I think it's the future of guitars. I think inexpensive guitars can really benefit from just roasting the necks. It seems like a really good process to get things done and get consistency with wood and quality. But like I said, and I talked about it on the Reverend Review, that I really don't like it when they cook the wood too much. I find that it gets a little too brittle and a little too hard, and it's just not what I prefer. What I will tell you is that if you're into hardwood necks, if you're into that stuff, you would probably like dark roasted necks, because it really kind of does the same effect. Almost like carbon fiber necks, obviously. I'm not really into that. What I want is them to roast the maple neck and color it a little bit, you know, not with coloring, but, you know, roast it to it. Darkens a little bit. I think it looks a little cooler. And, again, you don't have to deal with the fret sprout and all the other stuff you have to deal with, unless, of course, the fretboard is a different piece of wood like rosewood uh stout coffee says hey have you seen glenn fricker's recent video about speakers and the cab largely dictating your tone what do you think about that your instrument is all the things that make the sound it's in your head then it's in your hands then it's to the strings then into the pickups through the electronics of the instrument to the cable to the input of the amplifier to the amplifier you know or whatever pedals you have in play to the wire to the speaker all of those things are the tone and so according to what you're saying he's saying it's largely i don't know if i could say largely it's, it has a huge impact there's a reason why i have multiple cabinets again i have to have different cabinets different speakers for to do the videos because you know i'm demoing a product and i need it you know, need to sound good, but I need it to sound like, you know, something that you guys will understand. If I had this uh, crazy cabinet with four uh, blue Alnico speakers in it, no one would really have a reference of that. Because like Glenn's saying, that cabinet would have a sound and every amp would be then colored by that. But yeah, it has a huge effect, of course. I, I, I believe that. I will say this, and I've, I've said this before again, I use Vintage 30s. That's the speaker I like. But as I've said, I use the same Vintage 30s. I use a, just like you guys, or a lot of you, I use use obviously different cabinets different speakers but also i use like cab uh two notes products and i have the aux like i said i have the aux system they all have an effect think about this attenuators have a huge effect i plan to have a video you guys requested a video of the aux because we talked about using my uh, rock crusher and two notes versus my aux in that i'll explain how it changes your sound dramatically and why i like certain amps with the aux and certain amps i don't like with the aux shawnee is a cubs fan says uh phil i just bought a prs s2 mccarty this week this is my first PRS guitar. I like S2. There is something to love. Just like uh, somebody's mentioning, David's talking about Tribute is the, is the new studio. So like Tribute Gibsons, there's something to love about the more affordable layers of the high-end brands. So for instance, like Gibson in the studio, Fender in the Performer Series, is their lowest tier of the USA-made stuff. There's something about guitars that are from the boutique high-end brands or the high-end brands, but, you know, it's not about how they look. It's not about the binding. It's not about the stuff. It's just about getting down to the basics, you know, whether it's got three pieces of wood in the body versus two or one or whatever the thing is. There's just something about those guitars that appeal to me. It's like kind of like why I like my SG. I like things that are utilitarian you know what i mean i just want to use it you know and i like having a a piece of art guitar for sure there's something exciting about that but there's just something to me about a guitar that is not cheap it's not expensive you know it's both those things but you understand what i'm saying it's in the middle and it's just something nice and so i like the s2s and especially the 594 as you remember they sent me one and i ended up getting rid of that and my real 594 to get the hollow body and i don't regret that decision it was definitely a, a smart move at that time in fact it was funny when i was looking at pod clips the other day and it was the clip of me talking about that's the most expensive guitar i ever bought which was the hollow body 2 i bought last year and i will tell you this talk about a, what a perfect storm if it wasn't the perfect amount of covid sadness overworked to hell slight probably depression at the time for sure uh, especially you know all of us sometimes not realizing how depressed a lot of us were last year some of us did but some of us didn't it was it's been a really freaking ordeal 
And everybody's experienced a different grade of it. So again, you know, I understand I didn't get it as bad as some people, so I don't want to take away from anybody who's had it much worse than me. But, you know, no matter how you had it, it's still going to be very personal to you. And of course, all the things that happened last year, I think all those things kind of came together. I was just actually talking to uh, Matt at Texas Toast this morning about something. One of the things that came up was I was talking about the fact that I don't have a car anymore. I don't I don't own a vehicle anymore, that I have two kids that, that drive now. And so there's three cars you know, between my wife and the kids in, in the three cars. And what happened happened was I, I owned my truck outright. I sold my truck. And the reason I did it was my kids had a small accident in the parking lot. Although no one was hurt, thank God. And the damage was minimal. My insurance pounded me into the dirt. <laughs> my wife has switched now three times with insurance companies, you know, adjusting, adjusting, but still it's just epic numbers. I, th- I, I wouldn't even want to tell you guys, some of you guys probably have weak hearts and I could probably kill you guys if I told you what I'm paying in monthly car insurance. The reason I tell you guys that story is that guitar was an a- accumulation of like, okay, I sold a bunch of guitars i'm working all the time everything kind of sucks right now we can't take vacations we the vacations we had planned felt you know obviously because of covid didn't happen i sold my truck because i really don't need it and i go damn it i'm gonna buy this guitar (laughs) so i bought that guitar and uh, i don't regret it but i'll never do it again ever there's no scenario in my life where i think i'm gonna buy a guitar of that that caliber again price wise that was just uh, obnoxious as you guys know i've said this many times over the years i'll never buy a guitar with 2500 that's really technically the only guitar i think i've ever spent over that dollar amount for Okay, so Pedro says measuring neck relief and string height for setup is done the same on a compound radius fretboard question mark? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Nothing would change. Do you like the neck straight as possible? It depends. And I hate answers like that. So I hate giving you answers, you know, the politically uh, politician answer. It depends on the situation. But here's what I say. I'll I'll keep it easy. Yeah, of course. I would like the neck straight as possible, but there's certain guitars I don't. So let me give you an example. I don't like my Strat necks super straight. I like a little bit of relief in them. The Les Paul necks, for some reason, I like them super straight. My SG is like probably bone straight, probably stupid. I haven't looked at it in a while, but I mean, the action on my, on my, uh, SG that you guys keep seeing me play in the video is super low. It's an effortless guitar to play. And here's why I say that. This is why, uh, maybe, uh, I can articulate it a little better. Um, the neck being bone straight and the action being low, which is different things, but it's still part of the same way I'm going to explain it. Um, also has to do with what bridge and how, what, how the tension feels on the guitar. Like to me, I like my telly neck a little straighter than my strat neck because I feel like when I bend and play, I want, you know, the bridge doesn't move, you know, nothing moves and it's very stiff. So I kind of like having a little bit of grip. So the string being, you know, the neck having just a little bit of relief around the, uh, around the first to fifth fret, you know what I mean? Just a little bit of that right there as the, as the neck bows. That's where I notice the most relief is towards the center, towards the top, um, I actually like that. So again, it depends. Uh, but yeah, as a generically, I would say, yeah, I like all my necks to be as straight as possible. But in some cases, like I said, there is exceptions to that. Robert says, hey, Phil, I have a PRS S2 594 and I had it set up recently, but I still continues to buzz on the low E near the nut when playing open. Any suggestions? Sure, sure, of course. Uh, well, setup and, and, and buzz are you know, obviously not setups don't guarantee that there's no buzz. They should. Sounds like to me, I want to see if I want to read here. It says it's on the low E near the nut. What I don't know is if you're saying it's open when you're hitting open. Oh, when playing open. So that is probably your nut. Now there's two things in causing that. One could be the neck is too straight. You might need a little relief that might solve the problem. So I just want to let you know that, especially on a PRS, uh, one thing about say I'll, I'll say about this, if you ever want a guitar that just sets up super easy, it's going to be like a Paul Reed Smith S2 core guitar, not because they're made better than anything else. They're just not very complicated in the setup process. Process. There's not, it's almost impossible to strip those uh, truss rods because they're essentially a socket. Uh, you know, you use a socket wrench or a socket pi- uh, pipe. They call it the little pipe. Um, and, uh, but in your case, you might need a quarter turn relief that might solve the problem, but I, I'm just saying might, cause I don't think it is the case, but I wanted you to let you know that is a solution. What I think it is your nut slots cut too deep. So to check that, what you can do is you can take a piece of paper, uh, and, uh, loosen the string and stick the piece of paper. Like I said, just kind of stuff it into the slot on the low E and put the string on that and, uh, and when you tighten it, it's going to kind of push the, the paper past the nut, just kind of, you know, kind of 
figure that out. I think I have a video where I show you guys. Anyways, you back off the piece of paper, and when you tighten it, it slides into the slot. What you're trying to do is raise that string. Just raise the string a little bit. Um, so like I said, use a piece of paper, use a business card, whatever it is, put something in there, and that will raise it. You'll see you don't need to raise it very much. If the buzzing goes away, then the nut slot is cut too deep. You have two solutions for that. You can uh, get a new nut from PRS. Uh, it's a so you can get a prefab nut from them. You could take it back to the tech and have them cut you a new nut. Or you can fill that nut slot and then file it out yourself or have that done. Um, it's a graphite nut. So so I have a, a video where it shows you how to use baking soda and super glue. It'll work and you can fill that in there. There's a whole video I have on that. Just watch that. Shows you how to fill that in and, and do that. Uh, and then that will get you past that problem. But that's what it sounds like the problem is to me. So the nut slot's cut too deep. Could I discuss the two points? Strat style trim versus the six screw. Happy Friday. Cheers. Discuss it. Sure, of course. Um, you know, I, you got to understand where it comes from. There, originally, the Fender uh, guitars, Strats, had the six screw system. Six screws screwed into the guitar, screw the bridge in. Um, the two point actually happened later, and I believe GNL put it out, which is when, uh, well, maybe Music Man too. But you get, either way, Leo Fender did it post uh, Fender. It's when he did that design. And then Fender, of course, incorporated it in there because they saw he was doing that. The idea, the idea, the theory behind the two-point bridge system versus the six screws was that focusing all the contact on two points, there's less friction, right? Less contact going, uh, you know, with it. And therefore, it's going to stay in tune better. It's going to have uh, less issues staying, you know, you know, not staying in tune. Um We'll be right back. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying Oh yeah, I'm trying I'm trying I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We gonna have this like me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play we play with this shit right now. I lie, we play with this shit right now for for I gotta lie. Don't play with it, take that shit seriously. I mean, you have to understand, these are things that they just did, and then all of a sudden, you know, people said it was better. But I have strats in both. I have six-screw strat guitars and and two-point tremolos, and I don't notice anything. They all stay in tune when they're set up right. So uh, as we all talked about, if you guys watch my five things I think you don't know, five things you don't know about the PRS guitars, I mentioned that PRS has six screws versus two points on their custom 24s and stuff, but they use screws that have uh, a bevel cut into them so that the the blades all ra- the blade of the bridge rests on all six points of those screws. I think what I personally, what I notice is they feel different. The two-point tremolo has a different feel. It's definitely smoother than the six screw. Uh, it, it doesn't feel as stiff. And so that's a little bit of a change that I noticed there. So that's probably, you know, probably true. Or then again, it could just be in my head and, you know, it's not accurate. But that's the main thing by those two. And everybody kind of like, like I said, everybody has these theories like, oh, the 17 degree angle, the 14 degree angle, the six point screws, the two point screws. But what I've learned is, like I said, the, sure, there's things you can do to guitars to make them better. That's absolutely sure, for sure. And get you more consistency. But you can get good guitars even with all those faults. It's like a Telecaster when somebody says, oh, they use a three-post bridge and they don't intonate. Well, that's not true. Some of them intonate perfectly. Some don't intonate at all. So again, you can guarantee it though, if you get a six-saddle uh, six bridge, it's going to be more, uh, it's going to be easier to intonate and it'll be more consistent. But again, there are outliers in all these things. And then uh, I would say on the, if I have a preference of a six-screw bridge versus two-point, I think I like the two-point feel a little bit nicer. That's it. And again, that's just my, you know, my feeling. Here's a question. I love it. I want to, it's from Josh. He says, is it true? And again, it's probably some joke in this, but I want to go with it. Is it true that basically people get pedals and tweak on them uh, to distract from learning music theory? What's interesting is what I call the non-existent argument. Okay. Uh, And this is my observation on this side of the screen as the YouTuber watching these millions of comments over the years on all these channels, but of course on mine, there's this argument that doesn't exist. (laughs) 
And obviously there's a clear victory when there's an argument that doesn't exist. So what I mean by that is you don't need an expense. I'm going to give you a bunch of arguments that don't exist. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and, then I'm gonna, and then I'll prove to you why they don't exist. You don't need an expensive guitar to play better. An expensive guitar doesn't make you play better. Uh, you don't need pedals. You just need to work on your technique. Right? Um, I'm trying to think of a couple more of them. Let's see. Um, you don't need an expensive amp. <laughs> right? Uh, what's funny about these comments or these, these arguments, and again, uh, by the way, Josh, I'm not saying you're making that argument. I'm just saying you brought up the subject that, that's making me discuss this argument. These comments are everywhere across the internet. They exist in every format. They in the YouTube and in the Instagram and in the and in the in the uh, in the uh, Reddit's in the uh, what do you call it? All these uh, forum pages. There's all these arguments that don't exist. Um, you need to work on your music theory, not your gear. <laughs> okay. Now here's why I say they don't exist. No counter arguments are being made. I cannot find for the life of me the argument that says. Hey, if you get a better expensive guitar, you get, you're better. You play better. Hey, if I get better pedals, I sound better. If I, you're right. There's nobody arguing like, oh, you need an expensive guitar. That's your problem. Why you suck. <laughs> right? No one's watching a video of a guy barely b being able to, to play three chords going, oh man, if you got an expensive guitar, you'd sound better. No one's making the counter argument. So I understand why people say that. It's almost like they want to remind you, which is if that's the intent, I think that's a great intent. Remind us, yes, we don't need pedals. You don't need gear. No one thinks you do. On that argument, you can say, think about this. Some people say, you don't need music theory to play well, right? Or you don't need music theory at all. How about this? In the music theory world, there's all this music theory boxes you in and you can't free think. And then there's, hey, you can't learn to play music. You can't play great music if you don't know theory. There's all these arguments. But what I see is there's no real counter arguments. I think we're all very aware is what I want to say. And if we're not... If we're not aware, then maybe <laughs> that's why it's a good idea. I'm bringing this up. I have seen no counter arguments to this. So what I'm basically what I've thought it, thought about this long and hard is, yeah, we are all aware. <laughs> I don't think anyone buying their seventh pedal uh, at you know uh, is going, man. I, I really need this pedal. Maybe I should go home and go back and practice. No, no, no. I need pedals, not practice. I, they're very aware of that. It's, it's like I said, there, there has to be, there has to be a line. And that's why I like to bring up the collectors versus the players and how I bring them together in this theory. You know, if you collect, and I always use the term Legos, don't ask why, if you collect Legos, you know, it's up to you if you, you know, I wonder, I always wonder, maybe I should go on the Lego forums and stuff. Maybe there is, do, do people watch a Lego video and go, you don't need a new Lego set. You need to work with the Legos you got and perfect your skills of Lego building. Is that a thing? Does any of you guys collect Legos? Can you confirm that that's a thing out there? I would love to know if that's, that's out there, that Lego people talk like us. The other argument, I'll tell you another argument that doesn't exist is like, uh, and I, and same thing. I'm curious if, if it exists outside of the guitar th the realm, which is like, everybody likes to tell you how they're not going to buy something or they don't have the money to buy something. And although I understand this need to kind of put out there the, to the world, what you're saying, cause Hey, I have that same channel. It's the same concept. The channel is that I, you know, I tell everybody what I, what I observe. Um, it's funny. Like, uh, you know, I'll watch a video and, and it'll be like on this pickup. And I'll be like, oh, and the YouTuber will be like, this is a cool pickup. It's like $140. And then the comments are like, you don't need a $140 pickup. You can get a cheap one. And then I go, I wonder if like that happens like on the Lego. <laughs> and again, I'm just using Legos. It could be anything else. Like, I wonder if like Lego communities go, $149 for a Lego set. That's stupid. <laughs> and then I'm like, uh, to me, the reason why I say this is I'm not sure why these arguments exist when... I think why we're all here is we all love music. We all love playing music and we all love the things that make music. And I understand that there's somebody out there and, and, and I think they're right, by the way, if their point is we need to focus on the importance, which is the making of the music. That's more important. Look, the making music is more important to having stuff that, that make to make music with. In other words, you don't need 20 guitars to make music. You only need one. And, but I, like I said all the time, uh, I or I already play music <laughs> every day. I I enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, 
Uh, like I said, I, I literally, I love that I live a life. I live a life where I literally play guitar seven days a week. Uh, um, uh, and I love that. And I'm lucky. And I feel very uh, lucky to be able to do that. And I know some some of you don't get to play music every day or all the time. And, uh, but I, the reason I tell you that is I laugh because I'll have somebody comment in a video like, you need to stop doing videos about gear and play music more. And I'm like, okay, but I'm already playing music all the time. I mean, I'm not going to play music every minute of every day. <laughs> Even that gets boring. Um, <laughs> the panda says the Lego, Lego argument works on your kid. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, floopity doo, that's awesome. Legos, not Duplo blocks, build authentic. That's fantastic. I, I just, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I might want to start another hobby just for the experience of seeing if it's like this world. You know what I mean? I, I'm so immersed in this world daily that I kind of sometimes don't know if this is just how the world acts or if it's just something exclusive to the musicians and the gear community, this way that they we all talk and and... It's really interesting, like I said. Um, but like I said, if you and, and to me, as I always point this out, and I always say this just because I know there's players out there too. Look, if like I said, if you want to play three chords and own fifty pedals, uh, that's good. Do that. That makes you happy. You're not hurting anybody. I don't understand the whole shaming somebody for that. Uh, I like I said, I like to play music and I like to collect guitars. And I like to work on guitars and that's my interest. And that's why I have a YouTube that revolves around that. I think it's very obvious that you can't have 800 videos if you're not seriously into something. <laughs> so, um, but I do find it funny. Like everybody's like, you know, the, the, the no argument argument, <laughs> you, can, you, you, you don't have to have an expensive guitar to play great. But yes, that's a great point. But no one's arguing anything. I've never heard anybody argue the other side of that. Like I said, let me know if you guys see it. I would love to know. Susan says, whatever floats your boat. Perfectly said. See, Susan, you should have a podcast because instead of talking for 10 minutes, you could I could have just summed it up with what you said perfectly. Luke says, what hobby then? Me, train sets, maybe. You know what's funny is I, I know this is a thing I've been thinking about doing a, another hobby. I actually uh, have been on the search for something else to do. Uh, I work so much now uh, with this the three worlds that I, I call it the three worlds. It's three things I do every day, and they all are around guitar. <laughs> so when I'm doing guitar, doing guitar, and doing guitar. And so I keep thinking about doing something outside of guitar, which I've never done in my pretty much my whole life. Uh, and um, I looked at some uh, hobbies uh, and, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll figure something out. <laughs> maybe. Okay. Uh, but if you guys want to send suggestions, I'm up for it. Uh, Julianne says, hey, just bought a Mesa Fillmore and I love it. I'm wondering why do some people hate master volume so much? And what are uh, some char characteristics of a good master volume? Thank you for the awesome show every week. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, this is, it's funny because you're the second question. Think about this. All these years, all these questions, there's certain questions that I've just never seen. And then all of a sudden I see it again. It's weird. You're the second person to bring up somebody not liking a master volume amp. And I don't perceive it that way. I perceive it as everybody loves master volume amps. And the, besides the fact that, I mean, don't get me wrong. We love like, you know, the Fender, or the Fender, the Marshall Plexi, uh, the, um, the 5E3 circuit Fender, you know what I mean? Stuff like that that doesn't have a master volume. There's, there's, there's definitely some charm and grace to those old amps that don't have master volumes. But I've, I, I'm not from that uh, era. I'm from the era of, you know, we all had master volume amps. So to me, it was, excuse me, it was later that I discovered the amps that didn't have master volumes and there was a magic to them. But the non-master to me is not the exciting part of those amps. They just sound good. Maybe it's because they don't have a master volume, but man, I can't, like I said, the Plexi is unbearable. It's a beautiful sounding amp, but it's just, it just hurts. It hurts, like I said, it hurts your teeth. Uh, it's so loud. Uh, I would, I would rather like the Mesa Fillmore is, it looks like a fantastic amp. Um, it's one of those amps that if I didn't have enough amps and I didn't have, 
you know, because at this point I have a couple amps that I've acquired over the last couple of years that I wanted in my personal collection. And then of course a company, some company sent out some really cool amps. And at the, you know, that's one thing that happens on the YouTube channel is one thing that's lucky. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, a company will send out a nice amplifier for a review and they go, okay, you can hold on to it. And that's really cool. But it's also like, okay, well, that's cool. But now this other amp I had my eye on, I can't justify having both. So uh, sometimes we'll back off and have the other amp. Um, the Fillmore, Mesa Fillmore is definitely an amp I would probably have considered buying if it wasn't for the fact that I kind of, like I said, got, got other amps in my, in my, in my, uh, I don't know. I want to say collection, but it kind of is a collection. So, um, so what are the characteristics of a good master volume amp? Um, well, that you can play it at any volume level. What I found is it's not even about master volumes or wattage. Like I said, I've learned that this, that, that was what we were kind of sold as a really, a, a, a bill of goods. This idea that somehow the wattage dictates how quiet the amp can sound good at. Sure. You can get a five watt amp to get it's quieter, I guess, or less loud than a, a hundred watt amp, but really that has nothing to do with it. There's hundred watt amps that just have, that can sound fantastic at low volumes. And there's five watt amps that just cannot. And I have an ex uh, example. I'll just, let me take a drink of water real quick. To me personally, and this is why I say this, because again, everybody's ear is different. And everybody's going to have a different experience of this. To me, a perfect example of a failure of a lower wattage amp and a success is the Marshall Studio Series stuff. As you guys know, I bought the Silver Jubilee 20-watt amp. I bought the JCM 120-watt studio, and I played through the 20-watt uh, uh, Plexi, their, their, their version of the Plexi, right? The vintage studio. And all three of those amps have the same problem to me, which is they are great. They are not quiet. And 5-watt mode on those, all three of those, made them thin and unpleasing to me. I did not enjoy this way that 5-watt sounded. Um, I like the fullness of the 20-watts. And even I would rather, and on all three of those amps, I would keep it on 20 and then turn it down. And I felt that sounded a little better to me, to my ears, than the 5-watt mode, which thinned out. But regardless, I couldn't get those amps super quiet or quiet enough to, I don't even want to say practice because it wasn't about that. Just playing at a level that was reasonable. Um, they were just very loud for me. And it, it, and here's why I mean that. What happened was every time I got into a spot where they sound good, I go, oh, that sounds great, but it's a little loud. And I'd back it off. And even a little bit, I go, oh, see, now it's quieter, but it doesn't sound great. That's why I have the, the Friedman amps now. Uh, I bought the Freeman amps and, and d d trust me, it wasn't by like any kind of desired choice or anything. It was just like, literally like what I want is this Marshall esque sound. And I, I want it to be at a level that I can play it at, you know what I mean? Uh, whether it be at nighttime or daytime and the Marshalls just wouldn't do it, which is why I got the pedal pal. And I just run that through. Uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm just running the pedal pal, the Plexi and the 800, uh, through, through, uh, uh, I'm actually running through my Freeman. Um, and it does, it does everything I want it to do. And it's, it's fantastic. And, um, so that's a perfect example of a, of a, you know, a master volume amps that just to me don't, you know, again, I don't want to get off subject. Let's get back to the track. I'm sorry. I, that's why I shouldn't read comments. I got to get off that screen when I'm talking. What I'm trying to say is that, um, some amps, regardless of the wattage, just sound good at all levels. And that's what I like. And the Marshalls don't. For some reason, Marshalls just, you know, there's a reason why it's called the father. He's called the father of loud. Those amps just need to be loud to be, to get into the range that they do. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The pedal pal pedals, what they do is sure, they can make Marshall tones at louder volumes, but they do what Marshall does at loud quiet. And that's why I kind of lean into them. That's why I like them, uh, you know. And there's other great Marshall pedals out there. Like I said, you guys know Lawrence. Lawrence makes fantastic pedals. There's a ton of great pedals out there. Um, but the Pedal Pal guys, um, they only make two pedals now. They've really kind of, they were making more and more, and they really learned that what they got right, which is they got the 800 and the, nine, and, the, and the Plexi down. I really believe that, so you know, that they really got them down. It is creepy how good they got them to sound exactly like the amplifiers. Now, uh, and I'm just going to go on a little tirade for a second, if you don't mind. Um, 
like Lawrence makes the 74 pedal and that's a great Marshall pedal. It's definitely, if you're looking for this Marshall, you know, your dream Marshall, that's actually, I want to put that perfectly. Let's say the 1974 from LPD pedals to me is like the dream Marshall. That's the Marshall you hope you walk in a store, find this mystical, magical Marshall, plug into it and you strum a chord and angels sing. (laughs) And this is this Marshall tone. And that's great. And that's what's great about those kind of pedals and his kind of pedals. The Pedal Pal guys, what they do is they actually capture the amplifier, just the way the amplifier sounds. And sometimes you're not looking for a magical Marshall because you're not looking for a perfect sound. Like for me, I like to play a lot of like punk rock, indie music, and I don't want something that sounds really good. I want it to sound like, like I said, more like the traditional sound of the amplifier. Okay, so uh, Drip... Drip Topher says, my orange rocker verb Mark three fifty has a built-in attenuator, uh, that makes it sound incredible at, uh, at volume, at all volumes. Uh, why don't more manufacturers include attenuators built in? Cause there's a lot of other factors going into that, you know, there, so there is first, there is a lot of manufacturers that do it. I mean, obviously, like I said, the Ingle guys have it built in, um, Dr. Z, I have a Dr. Z and although the, the attenuator is external, it mounts onto the amp. So mine's mounted onto the amp. Um, there are amps that do it. And in my experience with this is, um, not all of them sound so great. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like I said, it's, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, I think the attenuators on the Ingles sound really good. I've, I've, I'm pretty pleased with them, although I don't lean on them very much. Um, and it also happens to do with the, another thing I've learned about all, all the attenuators I've messed with. Okay. Uh, whether you're the ox, the rock crusher, the, the tone King, um, all of them, there's certain things they do better than others, but one thing they all have in common is if you have to attenuate a lot, it's going to get dark and it's not going to sound good. So you understand what I'm saying? Like everything is about a light attenuation, if that makes any sense. Like the Dr. Z is probably my favorite one to kind of explain this to. If I plug an amp into the Dr. Z, especially with the Dr. Z, and I, it's got five clicks, I think, right? So it's like the, you know, all five over is the most, you know, kind of pushed down. The first one sounds good. The second one still sounds good. The third one's not so great. And then it just gets worse after that. It's like, if you have to really choke down the amp, it's not going to sound pleasing. It doesn't have a lot of the, um, doesn't have a lot of the magic that the, it's like sucking some of the magic out of the amp. Yeah. ER Webster says H and K amps have again, again, integrated in the amps. Very good. There's a lot of this and there's a, there's a lot of reasons. And another reason why a lot of manufacturers don't do it is expensive attenuators are kind of expensive. Uh, I, there's a lot of them that have step downs. I don't know if that's the same thing, but it's a switch that does it. Josh says there is absolutely nothing that can replace a cranked amp. Problem is even pro musicians don't get to turn it to 10. That is a very accurate <laughs> statement. <laughs> yes. And that's why I said some amps just live, uh, they live in sweet spots. That's just the reality of things. Some amps uh, live in a spot where um, I, I, the Bogner is a great example of this. The Bogner amp, when it's turned down, sounds really good, but it's a little bassy. And as you turn it up, it kind of, the bass chills out. And then if you turn it up too high again, it goes back into bassy for me. So that's, you know what I mean? So there's a sweet spot. Landon says, Landon Bailey from the Landon Bailey channel says, I bought a Tone Master Deluxe Blonde Reverb. I had the Tone Master as well. And, uh, and it says, I'm really impressed with it. Uh, Princeton's still my favorite. Yeah, the, the, well, the master, the master, uh, the, um, tone master amp, uh, attenuator, cause it's a simulate, it's simulated, right? It's not real. It's a digital amp and it's not really attenuating in the back. There's no real attenuation. It's kind of like the same concept in the, uh, Katana. If you guys, for those of you have the Katana, same technology in the idea that, uh, it's simulating, you know, an attenuation. And that's why I think it does it really well, because I agree with you. In fact, one of the things that I think that makes the Tone Master Deluxe stand out is it can do what the Deluxe does at loud volumes quietly, where, where you know, even the Deluxe doesn't do it that as great. The Tone Master is cool, cool amp. Like I said, it's a really good amp. I, I really think it's a really cool idea. I really like the way they did it, executed it. Um, and at the point when it came out, I thought they were priced absurdly high. Now I still think they're high. The problem is that they made the other amps even more so. So now it makes sense. I mean, now $900 for a tone master 
is still, I think, ridiculous for the price point. But $900 versus the $1,500 makes sense. The problem was when they first came out, they were priced, what, $100 less than the real thing? And they could spin all the, uh, the, the corporate jargon they want about the you know, technology and the development and all that stuff. I always get in trouble whenever I kind of downplay people's R&D. Uh, we have an industry, to me, that's funny. From some of you that obviously work in other industries uh, that are outside the musical industry, you understand R&D sometimes for, like, let's say, uh, a microcontroller for an airbag. That's some serious R&D. Because there's a safety aspect to it where tens of thousands of hours or man hours are applied and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not, you know, more. And then we have an industry where it's like, well, I did like five versions of this thing and we tweaked the, the, the capacitors in six different ways and we have to recoup all that R&D. You're like, and so I'm not trying to downplay that because obviously, uh, you know, I have to do R&D too, uh, but it's, it's the point is it just seems a little sometimes a little bit much and fender i really believe that fender could have priced those amps at the 700 range and it would have been really a bigger a bigger deal i think they would have hit a sweet spot i wish they would have really came out that way like i said it's the only overall complaint i have about the amp to save 10 pounds in weight it just seems like it was a lot of money for it and ultimately like i said i didn't keep mine and the only reason i've said this before on the tone master the only reason i didn't keep it was the price I just feel like it was a lot of money invested into a product, into an amp that I just am not going to get a whole lot of use out of. Uh, TJ says Tone Masters are now 1100 bucks. Is that what they are now? I, I thought I saw that still they're still floating at the under sub. I think the 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 uh, Tone Master Twin is like 11 now, right? So you know, I really think they opened up a new market with the Tone Master super reverbs and stuff. I think, and, and I think the basement 59, if they do that, I think they'll be opening up new markets to me, big amplifiers that are heavy, like the twin that are, that are made lighter is a good idea. Um, I really kind of regret maybe I should have got the twin. I think if to my own devices, if I bought the amp for just me, that day I would have bought the twin. I bought the deluxe reverb because I was like, well, I'm going to make a video and then I want to compare it to the deluxe reverb I have and the idea that I want to be able to tell you guys, you know, what it is I'm, I'm looking at. So again, that's one of the things that's ha about having a channel when you're trying to make content. And we have Greg. Greg says, just got my first tube amp head, Ignator Rebel 30. I had one of those head heads. They were fantastic. Any recommendations on what to aim for for a cab? I get the Ignator cab. It's a great cabinet and you can get it for a good song. It's ported. It's got a decent speaker in it it's built really well i think it's like a eight ply birch it's a decent cabinet they look cool they match the amplifier you could definitely find a deal on an ignator cabinet for sure that's what i would definitely uh, look at um getting that cabinet that was a great amp the ignator 30 was one of those amps that i, I don't think a lot of us knew what it was when we first got it um, when they first came out, there was the Ignator Rebel 20, the Tweaker, which was the 15, and then the 30. And the 30 was, the uh, reason I went for the 30 was it had reverb. I was like, oh, cool, I want built-in reverb. And it had the blendable power tube sections, and it had a lot of stuff going on. And I remember thinking, this is the greatest thing. And and remember when I was talking about, uh, you know, kind of like I talked about the Katana uh, a while back, about a year ago, about how when something comes out and it's unique and it's inexpensive, it's like everybody's like, this is the greatest thing ever because it literally is. It's something Something cool, unique, and inexpensive. And then as it becomes like everybody's like, oh yeah, I have a Rebel or I have an Ignator, then you're you don't feel like your amps is special anymore. And for some reason you just kind of fall out of love with it. And uh I can tell you right now, going down a journey of amps after the Rebel 30, I think I could have just stayed at the Rebel 30. That's another one of those amps. Maybe that's a video I should make one day if I can actually map it all out. But there's definitely gear over the years that I've acquired. You know, now, you know, you evolve, I guess evolve is the word where we go to the next piece of gear, next piece of gear and over a period of time. And then if you look back, you're like, wow, there's definitely like four or five times where I, if I just stopped there, I'd been I'm not, no better off now than I was then. A bunch of letters, mostly X's, <laughs> says, uh, access associates says, at what point does the law of diminishing returns happen when buying new gear? Is there a price point? Love the show. Sure. Of course there is. Absolutely. Uh, and it's not, and I've talked about comfort zones before too, like, you know, you're spending more than you're comfortable with and then therefore it feels expensive. This is a different thing. The law of diminishing returns is definitely there. And it's, uh, and, and here's, here's a, here's a way to look at it that I've kind of, you know, learned to kind of observe and look at it this way, which is. I once watched an interview with Steve I, and he was talking about Kurt Cobain and Angus Young, and he was saying in this interview, which I thought was a beautiful interview, he said, every guitar player needs to be as good as they need to be. 
So he's like, Kurt Cobain was as good as he needed to be to be in Nirvana. And it was a very, very interesting speech in this idea that if you want to be a virtuoso guitar player like Steve I, then of course you need to be play like Steve I. But if you want to play in a punk rock band, you need to be as good as the people in the punk rock band. I thought this was an interesting speech and I think it translates to gears just as simple. So is there a law of diminishing returns on gear? We know that there is. The question is, where does it happen? And I've decided it happens with your goals, not you, because there's the theory like you should buy better gear than you, you know, than you are, right? Buy an instrument that's better than you is a statement I agree with, which is buy an instrument that you, everything should be what you grow into. But at some point where I think diminishing returns come from, come in is that you can actually go not 10 years from now, not five years from now, not two years from now, picture yourself playing and doing what you want to end up at. Picture it in your head, in other words, like this is me playing that music and this is what it sounds like and this is what it looks like and feels like. This is where I want to be as a as a as an artist. And whether you're in your bedroom playing for yourself or your two cats, <laughs> or you're playing in front of ten thousand people, uh, you're a musician. I don't care what anybody says. You play music. You know, there's performers. That's different. You're a musician. When you're playing music, you need to not only have a goal, but you need to know where you need, where you want to be. And if your first reaction, I know a lot of you are going to have this reaction because I hear it all the time. Like, I want to be the next Joe Bonamassa or whatever, and I, I can't do it. Sure, of course. I, there's Obviously, you got to know the limitations of re, uh, being real with yourself. But you still need to know where you think you're going to be, and you'll be able to picture it. When you figure out who that is, who you are, when you are at that place you want to be, what you're going to sound like and what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like. You can figure out in theory what gear you think you're going to need when you're there. And that's the law of diminishing returns. In other words, you don't need anything more than that. I know that's a weird way to approach that question. I've approached that question many times over the years with this show because it's get asked a lot. And I've tried to hit it different ways, not so much to, you know, uh, mostly just to make it different experience each time watching the episodes uh chad wants to know i bought he bought an iron ball se thanks for the demo can you explain the evertune bridge to a hardtail guy uh pretty pretty please well i'm one i'm glad you got the se and i'm glad you like it because i really do like it it like i said it was a very hard video that was one of those videos i would say if you ask me 10 years from now or two years from now and you go, what was one of the hardest video reviews you ever did? That was it because it was really hard to articulate what I liked and didn't like about it versus the uh, fireball. And, uh, and I want to, and if you don't mind, Chad, I want to answer a question. Somebody asked me uh, earlier and I saw it, so I pinned it, but I didn't get to it, which is, uh, he says, Hey Phil, what amp do you prefer the Engel SE or the Mesa Mark five 25? And here's what I'm going to say about that and where I ended up with all this. Uh, on the Iron Ball SE versus the Mark V that I have, the Mini, here's what I will tell you. If the clean channel matters to you the most, I like the Mark V Mini. What I've decided is I like the Iron Ball SE in every way over my Mark V. I like the overdrive distortion better. I like the features better. I like you know everything about it more, except for I like the clean just a little teeny better on the Mark V. So have I decided to kind of ditch the Mark V for the SE? I haven't decided that's the way I'm going to go yet, but that's the holdback. It's just that one thing because I like the the SE. The Iron Ball SE's clean is chimey and clean, which is nice. But the Mark V's clean is chimey, but it's also fuller, right? And sometimes I like that. So... Uh, that's the same thing. I had the problem with the fireball versus the SE, which is I, the fireball, I think the clean on the fireball just is a little fuller, uh, in the room. Um, and that's why I said a little bigger sounding when turned up, but the SE just kills. It's a fantastic amp. So back to Chad's question though, which is the Evertune bridge. I have no idea. Um, like I said, my, from when I told you guys before, I've worked on one once or twice years ago. I, remember like learning about it so I can make the adjustments for the setup. Um, I don't know what's what it's a weird uh, thing. That's why I want to spend some time with the one. Uh, somebody super chatted me some funds towards buying one. I put them, I earmarked them. I have it. I've been looking for the right, you know, deal, the right experience to buy the Evertune and do the, do the video. Um, so, I mean, it's still a video. It's just, like I said, it's, uh, like everybody, it's COVID. It's really just the market has been an interesting mess. I don't want to really pay an insane overpriced amount for an instrument that I'm just going to do a video with. Um, and I have no idea if I'm ever going to use that guitar again. 
Um, I, I don't know. My instincts tell me I'm, I'm not going to fall in love with the Evertune system. And uh, although I don't want to really approach it that way, I need to be realistic. The realistic is that if I spend $1,500 on an Evertune instrument or $1,200 on an Evertune instrument that I play once in a video and never play again, that's a lot. You know what I mean? A video, if that video does uh, 200,000 views, I would make a couple hundred bucks. And you know what I mean? And then somebody super chatted me some a little bit for it. I mean, I'm still in the hole, $800 on a guitar I'm not going to use, and then I'm going to sell it. So I have to, like I said, there's there's a little bit of business strategy to this YouTube game that you have to follow. So um, I'm trying to find either a guitar I really think I'm going to like and stick with, so therefore it's a, it, makes a, it makes it a worthwhile purchase, or an instrument I think I have an opportunity to check out and maybe get out of when after I'm done doing the video. Like I said, we'll get there. But to answer your question, I don't know, but I'd love to answer your question by doing a video, so that's why I'm still working on that, that opportunity. Uh, Jake says, uh, tuner, <laughs> tuner screw hole on a Les Paul stripped. Okay, any way to fix it? Yep, use a toothpick. <laughs> he says, without a dowel or toothpick. Why? What's wrong with the toothpick? Does it bug you? <laughs> Don't use a used toothpick. This is afraid of, I'm afraid I'm going to scratch the finish trying to cut a dowel. Don't do a dowel. Do a toothpick. Uh, it's a tuner hole screw. Uh, it's super easy. A dot of type on wood glue and uh, just a piece of toothpick. Shove it in there. Uh, glue it. And um, and you're, you know, you're, it's fine. Yeah, You know what? It's Trust me, if you took it to 90% of the techs across the country, that's how they would fix it, and uh, you wouldn't even know. So, uh, I mean, that's what they would do. Um, I do use something besides toothpicks sometimes, which is I have uh, wood uh, sh uh, shavings. Sometimes I use wood shavings because um, I just learned to do that because I can put like two or three shavings in there and then some glue, and the glue makes the wood shavings a little soft. And then um, I have a um, uh, on my Stumac, which I love, this this thing right here, um, I have uh, which I highly recommend these. Like I said, they're I told you guys this before. They're super expensive, but I want to point out um, they did send me one, but I bought one too because actually I think I bought two of them. But uh, they have a ton of cool little bits in here in this kit, and one of the things that have not only do they have the bits that you can use to uh, rethread screw holes in there, which is nice for that kind of technique. They have also the, the, uh, where is it at? They have some of the, there's one in here. I know I use it all the time. They have, uh, where's the pointy thing? There's a point, <laughs> there's a pointy stick thing in here. For some reason, I can't find it because I'm in the dark, whether you guys realize it or not. And it presses in there and does it. So kits like this work really good for that. And you don't have to have a ton of tools and you'll find a thousand uses for that. Um, but uh, don't be afraid to put use the toothpick. And there's nothing wrong with using the toothpick in that hold. I mean, again, nothing. It's a piece of wood. <laughs> it's it's a piece of wood going into another piece of wood. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, uh, like I said, if it emotionally upsets you, you can also shave wood shavings and stick them in there like I do. Uh, Paul did a super chat just to say thank you. I appreciate that. Rafi says, I got a 1982 Takai Silver Star for a steel. Has lower end weird shaped guitars shaped tuners wait oh it has lower end weird shaped tuners yes they do and they are really stiff how would you fix or replace and with what those i like said i love recommending the ump system which is by hipshot where it has a plate an adapter plate for guitars like that or the um ratio tuners from graph tech again that have adaptive plates guitars like that i definitely recommend uh, that you, if you're going to replace the tuners, first get rid of the crappy tuners. Just pull them out, put them in Ziploc bags, seal them all up, right? Uh, take a piece of uh, um, tape right on there, uh, you know, what they are so you know what they are and put them away. And then get the aftermarket tuners that have adapter plates. So literally everything goes in there. No new holes, new, new no modifications. Your guitar is fantastic. And then if you ever decide to sell it off the guitar, because, you know, hey, you know, I, I, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, you can take all that stuff and put the original tuners back in. This is a question that's come up a couple times, not in the actual show, but in the comments of the replay of the show, which is why do we talk about selling instruments? There's comments again, like I buy guitars to own them. I don't buy them to sell them. Everyone, for the most part, thinks they're buying a guitar to own it. It's not, it's not... Well, I don't know. Most in most cases, no one's buying a guitar 
to immediately flip it. That's not the logic. We're not guitar flippers here. I'm not, I don't buy instruments as a whole. Uh, you know, like I didn't buy that silver Jubilee Les Paul, like I'm going to get a deal and then I'm going to flip it for a profit. That's not my goal. I bought it because instinctually I'm like, this is what I want. I want a silver burst Les Paul. I wanted a studio, it, you know, everything fit the criteria. However, six months or a year from now, if I'm not using it or I didn't bond with it because the neck's a different shape or there's something else, it might go. And I have to be realistic. Most instruments don't stay with guitar players. That is just a fact. You change it. It, you know, you, you, you change first. Um, it doesn't fit. You know what I mean? It doesn't fit. You know, the, the vibe isn't right. The feeling's not right. The sound isn't right. There's a ton of reasons why instruments go, and there's nothing with making a rational decision on on a product that you can actually recoup your money from to make wise financial decisions with it. Um, I would love to live in a world where you go to a music store, you play a guitar for an hour, you find out you absolutely love it, you buy it, and it just n never happens again. Um, now, there is a realistic uh, issue, which is you understand that a lot of musicians used to keep their guitars a lot longer than they do now, and it's because, well, you have the opportunity to get out of it. It's very easy to sell things now. Uh, that convenience has made things a little tougher to tolerate things that you don't love. So, uh, Terry Clark says, where's the best place to sell gear? The absolute best place to sell gear is to your friends. In my, in my experience, uh, like I said, I sold a bunch of pedals last week. Um, I find, I, and so I text. So if you're fortunate enough to have a lot of gear freaks, uh, great. If not meet some of the ones in this chat, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, join chat, you know, join groups, uh, you know, interact with uh, people who love what you love. The reason I say that is, uh, for instance, um, you know, you have a different set of rules when you're selling to a friend, right? You go, uh, let me give an example. Let's say I want to sell this Keeley Red Dirt pedal, which I don't, but let's say I want to sell it. Let's say I'm into it for 120 bucks. Right. Well, you know, yeah. If you put it on reverb, can you put it for one forty nine ninety nine? And can you make twenty bucks? All these things can happen. But, but I, sometimes it's not always about that. Sometimes it's easier to contact a friend and say, "Hey, I have a red dirt. I'm into it for one twenty. Anybody want it for what I'm into it for? Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe because they are worth one fifty. You're like, "Hey, I'm into it for one twenty. I'm always upfront about it. I'm into it for one twenty, one thirty five. Anyone want to give me one thirty five? Now your friend, you're not dealing with a stranger, you know, even if they're not local, I, I, I'll mail it to one of my friends, you know, it's just a lot easier to deal with that way. So I like that environment a lot better. Um, and it's a lot easier. Um, some people don't like that because they don't want to sell their friends and have bad experiences, but generally, uh, most of the gear that I have, if I'm getting rid of it, I really liked it for some reason. So I'm you know, but other than that, then you have your traditional eBay, Reverb, Craigslist, all those platforms, and of course, you know, stuff like that. So, all right. Uh, now we have Thomas. Thomas did a sticker. Thank you for the sticker, Thomas. And then Steven says, I have a made in Mexico fender neck with a thick fretboard finish covering the lower portion of the frets. Interesting. What? Fretboard finish. Oh, okay. I know what you're saying. Crowning proving the problematic. I got you. So what Steven is talking about is the clear coat on the neck is over the frets. I think that's where we get it, right? Fretboard finish covering the lower portion of the frets. Yes. Um, yeah, it's even worse. So if you have a maple neck, a maple fretboard, they they'll, they'll clear coat over the, the frets, over the tops of them, everything. Um, so in your case, uh, your issue is you want to crown it, but it's got that, uh, finish. Um, what I do is I have a razor blade and sometimes I heat it depending on the, the finish and what I'm doing and how it is. And I score all that off and remove it, score it on the sides. I actually remove all the finish from the fret itself. It is a crappy process. Um, I, I don't know of a quick cheat way to do it. That's the way I do it. It's the right way to do it, which is remove the finish. If you're going to have to crown the frets and, and level level and crown them or anyway, and they're they're encapsulated, especially in poly, which sometimes that's what the fenders are versus some of the vintage reissue fenders, which are going to be nitro, uh, you have to 
you have to score that stuff and get rid of it. So, so there you go. The, what else? I think that's it. I think we did it. We did over two hours and we answered a crap ton of questions and had a nice discussion about guitars. Um, Oh, you know what? And then, and then I just on a finished note, because Magic Man says I'm really gassing over some ebony toothpicks. You know, what's funny about that is I didn't even say, I didn't even say that's why I use wood shavings. I apologize. When I mentioned that I use toothpicks, but I also use wood shavings, that's why I use wood shavings. I use wood shavings from the woods that I'm going to fill the holes with, if that's sometimes important. Mostly it's not, but sometimes aesthetically, you know, might see some of it. And so if I, I know that it is, I'll shave off. A, I have all kinds of, I have little blocks of wood, uh, rosewood. Um, I even have a little block of Brazilian rosewood. I have rosewoods, uh, uh, palfaro, uh, uh, winge, ebony, all this stuff. And that's what I shave off of. So there you go. All right. I know you guys are making other jokes, but I just want to let you know that's why I did it, for aesthetics, the way it looks. All right, on that note, I'm going to let you guys go. Thank you guys for uh, dealing with all the technical difficulties. Like I said, it was interesting dealing with the new OBS issue, but uh, I'm sure it'll get figured out uh, next week. And uh, until next Friday, I think I'll leave you guys alone. Have a great weekend. Play some guitar. I will see you next Friday at 3 on time. And uh, thank you for all the moderators, for Amanda, uh, for Ben, uh, for uh, I'm Not Old on Vintage, for Brian, for Grumpy Mike Guitar, and I may be missing one or two others. And if I am, I apologize. I'm scrolling right now to say thank you because, again, I want to thank you guys for dealing with all the stuff you deal with every week. Floopity do, floopity do. See, I want to thank you for that. Everybody else who joined the discussion this week, have a great weekend, and I'll see you next Friday. All right.